0: Hello and welcome to DIY TDCS where we explore what's happening in the fascinating world of transcranial direct current stimulation my name is John Humphrey and this is podcast episode number three my guest today is Marom Vixen, co-founder and CEO of Soterix Medical and associate professor at City College of New York in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. I spoke with Marom on January 29, 2013. We ran into some Skype gremlins towards the end of the conversation. You'll hear where I cobbled an ending together. Today is January 29th, 2013, I'm speaking with Marom Bixon, co-founder and CEO of Soterics Medical and associate professor at City College of New York in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. Marom, I was wondering if you could just start out telling us a little bit about your background, maybe even all the way back to when you were like a teenager just getting interested in uh, electronics.
1: Well, that's interesting. Um, so you know, when I was a teenager, I was uh, heading off to um, Johns Hopkins University to do a bachelor's in biomedical engineering, mm-hmm. and at that time already, I was interested. Like I think a lot of people are, at the interface between technology and you know people and the body. Though I don't, I don't know if I really understood much more than that basic idea back then. But certainly that is what, what biomedical engineering, you know, as a major and as a profession, it's where it lives at that interface.
0: Were you um, a big sci-fi fan?
1: I was, though. I, I don't know. Is that, maybe there was a <laughs> <laughs> there, that piece of some psychology in there. But I loved, uh, you know, I loved to read, uh, mostly reading. I don't know how much television there was back then. A little bit, maybe. But uh, mostly reading, you know, I guess starting from Asimov and, and heading up from there. Um, and I certainly wasn't shy about technology. Um, my mom worked for a big uh, computer company. And uh, she had many opportunities to, br- to bring things home um, from them. And so, of course, that was an opportunity to, to break those things. <laughs> uh, and I, I, don't, I wasn't really that good at putting them back together. So uh, maybe something there. And then at Hopkins, uh, I got interested in instrumentation. And from then on, uh, I went on to Case Western, where I did my PhD in biomedical engineering. Also, still interested in instrumentation, but instrumentation to specifically interface with the brain, mm-hmm. and that interface was through electrical stimulation and electrical recording. And so that's sort of the 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 Maybe uh, I didn't realize it started all the way back from those sort of you know staying up all night with the with the flashlight reading <laughs> 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 science. We'll see where we end up.
0: Mm-hmm. And as far as Soterics goes, did you always know you wanted to start a company, or was it more that you saw a need and an opportunity?
1: I think Soterix grew pretty organically out of some some research that was running in my lab now. So one of the branches in my lab now is is a program to prototype instrumentation for various biomedical engineering applications, including TDCS mm-hmm. and the, the interest we had and, and the requests for equipment through that program got to a point where it wasn't sustainable in the lab. And so that's where uh, Soterics grew as, as a spinoff out of, the, out of the university.
0: Can you give me an example of what you mean by instrumentation?
1: Sure. A lot of people have ideas, right, for a medical device or a new medical gizmo. Uh, and you have to be, there's a process to developing these and there's a process to deploying them. In early clinical trials, um, a lot of that process is design, but a lot of it is also just paperwork and monitoring uh, and learning how to interface with all the different groups involved, like the IRB. Uh, and so w- we have a pipeline for that process, and it almost always involves working with a clinician or a group of clinicians who have an idea.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, how many founders are you?
1: For Soterics, it's three founders. Mm-hmm.
0: And do you have ANGEL or VC backing at at this point?
1: At this point, we've been doing a lot of it, I would say, bootstrapped. Hmm. Um, We were successful uh, in raising some uh, grants uh, through the government, um, including an STTR for a stroke trial, and that continues to be a source of revenue. Um, And so with that and through collaborations with different clinical centers, uh, we're able to support uh, the engineering effort.
0: Wow. And is it Abhishek Data is your CTO? Is that correct? That's right. That's and, right.
1: And the other partner? Is Lucas Para, who is a, a, a full professor actually here uh, in my department in biomedical engineering at City College. Great. And he is a uh, signal processing guru.
0: Mm. Can you talk a bit about the challenges of creating a biomedical device and bringing it to market?
1: Uh, you know, there's two issues. One is the sort of the creation and, and the trials, and, and the other one is bringing it to market. Um, I, uh, those issues are obviously linked. I would say I am, I'm much more experienced maybe on that first part of it, which has to do with the design mm-hmm. and the clinical trials. And, and there, you're obviously dealing with making something work, right? Uh, and you're dealing with efficacy, but you're also thinking a lot about safety. You're thinking a lot about redundancy. Um, and these things in the design process that are sometimes called, you know, these FDA quality systems, methods, and a lot of it is not about what happens the 999 times Mm -hmm. where things work exactly as expected. Uh, it's accounting for that one out of a thousand times. So really ensuring robustness and reliability and most of the engineering effort goes into that, you know, one out of a thousand cases, uh compensating and dealing with those before they happen.
0: I see. Would you care to give us a little overview of the Soterix medical devices?
1: Sure, the Soterix is very much focused on supporting clinical trials in transcranial direct current stimulation and also variants of that, like high definition transcranial direct current stimulation. So the all the, the devices that um, are currently deployed are designed to support ongoing clinical trials in areas such as depression. There's a there's a multi-center depression trial being headed by Colleen Liu, but there's also several sites in the United States. There are pain trials, stroke, epilepsy, and my feeling, uh my philosophy I guess, which which is which is reflected in how soterics develop products, is that TDCS can and should be customized for the application. Um, so it's certainly one approach to use the exact same montage and current and pad positions for every indication and every type of subject. Um, but we believe that by customizing the therapy and maybe in, maybe even individualizing it, you can get better outcomes. And so for my lab and also for soterics, it's sort of like a never-ending Job. It's a never-ending process where, where we're constantly learning uh, from the clinical partners about what their needs are and trying to adapt the technology to their needs.
0: Yeah, on the website, I saw, I'm quoting here, and uh, Soteric's neuro-targeting allows co-registration of current flow and measured responses. So you're, you're tr- actually tracking in the patient where the current is flowing? Is that, am I understanding it correctly?
1: Yeah, the so TERX developed some nice, some very nice software, um, which is which is very different than the kind of software that, let's say, I use in my lab, which requires supercomputers and you know months of training uh, to educate people. Uh, they've developed software really that is can run on a laptop and doesn't require any uh, backing software like MATLAB. So these are self-standing, uh, graphically driven software that are meant to be used by clinicians. And so the the neuro-targeting is part of that. This software essentially allows a clinician to explore, there's even a software called HD Explore, to explore current flow through the head on model subjects. So for example, the clinician may be interested in stimulating the motor regions uh, for some rehabilitation purpose. They can either use a you know a standard montage or they can say, can I do better? Can I can I rationally optimize the montage? And that's what the software lets them do. It lets them in a the simulation put the electrodes on different locations on the head and then visualize that current flow through the brain. And so that general process is what is referred to as neurotargeting. And it can be done on standard heads. So these are heads that already exist in a library. Mm-hmm. Adult male one, adult male two, you know, adult female one, and so on. Or you can actually start with MRIs of an individual subject and process them and load them into the software.
0: Yeah, trying to imagine how a software like that would come to be is kind of pretty much baffling me. Is it that you model the different resistances of the different tissues and, and, build an algorithm that accounts for that, something
1: like that? That's exactly it. So you're, you're not baffled at all. You exactly nailed it. The you know the current flow through tissue is governed by the resistivity of that tissue. And skull, for example, is much more resistive than skin. Uh, and CSF, cerebral spinal fluid, is one of the most conductive things in, in in the head. And so when we model current flow through the head, we have to realize that the head is sort of not one homogenous blob but it's made out of these different compartments, skull, CSF, skin, gray matter, white matter. And so we represent these different compartments in a model. Uh, the way we know where those compartments are is by starting with MRI and atomical scans. So for example, I could have a scan of my head, which was visualized the different tissues in my head. And then those tissues are segmented inside a computer program. And each tissue is assigned its resistance. So skull, again, would be assigned a high resistance, um, and skin a very low one. Once we do that, we can use that model to predict how current will flow through the head depending on where you put the electrodes. And this is something very analogous to Ohm's law. You know, current will, will try to find a path uh, of least resistance to get from the anode to the cathode.
0: Back to uh, the trials that are on- ongoing are any of the applications of TDCS more likely to result in an initial finding by the FDA for approval or certification?
1: That is a good question. The, the FDA tends to like one very large trial you know, rather than um, a dozen small ones. And so when you're, when you're looking at the horizon for something that would reach the FDA's threshold, you're almost inherently looking for a large, multi-center trial. Um, of those, the largest that, that we're involved with right now is the depression trial. And certainly it's being conducted with the rigor of something that could go to the FDA um, following essentially the same protocols that have been used, for example, for the transcranial magnetic stimulation trials. Um, and that is ongoing. So certainly that's, that's a possibility. But it's not the, I would say it's not the only indication of interest.
0: But it might be the most likely to happen first?
1: No, it's, it's, uh, uh, what is it? Zio Berry had that quote. He said, it's very hard <laughs> to make, uh, predictions, especially about the future. Yeah. And so I'm not sure. I think, I think what we can say for sure is that, that in a few years, we're going to be getting the results of that trial. Uh, and, and it will, it will certainly be, a major step forward, I think, for TDCS. And this is, again, this is really due to, to, to the credit of Colleen Liu and her team who put this very large trial, you know, together and put all the protocols in place.
0: That's a Black Dog Institute in Australia, right? Exactly. I saw a tweet of yours recently that really piqued my curiosity because it was in relation to a clinical trial, I believe, that's going on in Ontario uh, related to smoking cessation. And the tweet specifically mentioned uh, current dosage of up to 4 milliamp. Is, is, did I hear that correctly?
1: Yeah, though I mentioned that more out of, out of my surprise, than, which is why I sort of mentioned it rather than any particular sort of endorsement. The, uh. the, the device that was being used provides current up to 4 milliamp, uh, and, I, and I found that unusual. Now, I don't know whether the trial is using currents of up to 4 milliamp.
0: Oh, I see. Now, supposing the FDA does eventually approve TDCS for, let's say, depression, will that be device specific or will it just be across the board? Any, any TDCS device would, uh, from that point on, be uh, certified?
1: When the FDA uh, typically approves a device for a treatment, it is, it is specific to that device, but it does open the door for other companies with different devices to pursue FDA approval through this sort of me-too kind of mechanism, this 510K. So someone will go first, and that someone will likely have to l- conduct significant clinical trials. But I assume that once that door is open, other devices will, will try to follow it as, as, um, using that as a predicate.
0: I see. Uh, Soterics and, and you yourself are known to be developing the HDTDCS. Mm-hmm. C- can you talk about uh, that? And uh, specifically, I'd like to know more about your electrodes.
1: Sure. So conventional tDCS uses two large sponge electrodes, and usually just two. So there'll be one anode and one cathode, and they might be five by seven centimeters squared, and they'll be positioned, you know, either both on the head or one on the head and an extra one extra cephalic location, and. As you can imagine, this does not lead to focal current flow through the brain. In fact, most conventionally used montages will affect about half to a third of the brain with current flow. High-definition TDCS replaces the two large sponges with an array of smaller electrodes. And so high-definition refers to the fact that you switch from sponges to these small approximately one centimeter diameter electrodes. How you position the number of electrodes, how you position them on the head, and how much current you apply to each one will determine the the pattern of current flow. Uh, And you actually get a lot of flexibility, uh, more degrees of freedom by switching from two large pads to many small electrodes. So the software that we've developed in my lab and which has been transferred to Soterix allows you to optimize HDTDCS and the... The differences, for example, as far as maximum targeting between conventional TDCS and HD T D C S, they're pretty categorical. With HD T D C S you're talking about focusing down to the level of a gyri or two adjacent gyri rather than let's say half the head. And so there and there are other advantages of, of HD T D C S as well that, that that we believe in uh, for more rational clinical trial design.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking of an electrode array uh, that was in print quite a bit uh, around some DARPA research. I think it was coming out of Michael Weissen's uh, office. Or yeah. That's, it, it looks like five white circular electrodes in a clump, mm-hmm. in, in a circle. Is there another anode, like, in the middle?
1: So... I mean, I'm not I can't speak specifically to what they did, but um, when you use high-definition TDCS, you now have m- potentially multiple anodes and multiple cathodes. Now, every electrode at any given time has to be either an anode or a cathode. You can't wear both hats at the same time. So the anodes are the ones that are acting to push current into the head, and the cathodes are the ones that are acting to collect it.
0: There's so that stuff. one picture that's been all over the place. It was a new scientist and it shows a female army person Mm -hmm. training at a computer with a a cluster of electrodes on the side of her head. But you can only seem to see, in the quality of the photo, you can only see five uh, rings of electrodes. So I I thought it might have been one of yours.
1: So one thing people have been exploring is, when you asked about the design of the high-definition electrodes themselves, and it turns out that this matters a lot how you design them, meaning the gel that you use, the metal that you use, even the the compartment itself that holds it, is very important for tolerability. And so when we started on this effort, all the initial hardware development effort was actually focused on making small electrodes that can pass DC current in a very tolerated way. And our target was 2 milliamp. Uh, And we were successful. But what's interesting is, You can now say, well, what if I split that 2 milliamp across two, three, or four electrodes? So now you might have four electrodes arranged in a square, and each one is only passing 0.5 milliamps, let's say all anodes. What you've created is a virtual pad. But the sensation in that virtual pad will be much less than a conventional TDCS pad. And that may be the approach that Michael Wiseman is taking, where they are creating virtual pads, with high-definition electrodes. But you're right, if they all are of the same polarity, that current has to be being collected somewhere else. So perhaps, you know, you cannot see it, but perhaps in that image there's another electrode on the person's arm or on the other side of their head.
0: Okay, that makes perfect sense now. In your modeling, especially in your computer modeling, have you found parts of the brain that we can't target with HDTDCS?
1: You know, it's all relative, you can get current everywhere it's a question of what other things are you going to hit along the way and certainly the more we're talking about more superficial targets targets that are in the the cortex it tends to be much easier to get current there focally than a target say like the hippocampus or the deep brain Uh, and then there are sort of intermediary targets like the insula that are somewhere in between so Typically, I would say, there. when you're talking about deep brain structures, there's no magic bullet. You can't have current just arriving in that one deep brain structure and not everywhere else. But what you do is you optimize, uh, and you see how well you can do. But it, as a general rule, it does get easier to focalize the more superficial the target. Mm-hmm. The good news is there's a lot of superficial targets that are of interest for a lot of indications.
0: What is... Transcutaneous spinal direct current stimulation.
1: So transcutaneous spinal direct current stimulation is, is I think it's like what the name sound, it sounds. It's, it's transcutaneous as opposed to transcranial. Uh, you're not putting any electrodes on the head. You are using direct current and you're trying to change the excitability of the spine. That's transcutaneous spinal direct current stimulation. Uh, and this is something that there are several clinical trials on right now.
0: For, for example,
1: some of them are related to rehab, for example, after injury, especially if the injury is at you know the level of the spinal cord, to try to promote positive plasticity, to promote the reformation of connections, both injury and and potentially also due to some sort of degenerative disease. So uh, I think a lot of the work um, looking at the spine is interested in in motor motor function. I see mean is another
0: possibility. Any papers published on, on that recently that I should look for?
1: There are certainly some papers that have been trickling out over the last several years looking at DC stimulation of the spinal cord, certainly not at the rate of transcranial direct current stimulation, but my expectation is we'll be seeing more and more of those papers.
0: Can you walk us through a bit of the theory behind tDCS?
1: So as I mentioned before, with TDCS, you you need to start thinking about your anode and your cathode. Uh, and the anode is a positive electrode and the cathode is the negative electrode. And the anode is where current is exiting from the device through the electrode and going into the body. And the cathode is where current is exiting the body and flowing back into the device. So you're making the body part of an electrical circuit. When you put the anode, let's say, on a, on the head... The current will flow into the head and part of that current will flow into the brain. Some of it will be lost through shunting along the scalp, but some fraction of it will reach the brain. And if you are the cortex looking out, you see the arrival of this positive current. And so under the anode, if you are the brain, you see current arriving and current flows into the cortex under the anode. At the cathode, the opposite happens. So the cathode is sort of the, the exit region. This is where current is flowing out of the brain. So if you're the cortex under the cathode, you're losing positive current. You're seeing positive current flow out. Now, if we go back to the anode situation and we look at that cortex, you can imagine this sheet of brain and positive current flowing down into it. And as it flows down, it passes along neurons. Mm-hmm. It's out that because neurons have a particular morphology, this positive current flowing into the cortex will depolarize cell somas and specifically the somas of of layer 5, 6 pyramidal neurons. So under the anode, somas are being depolarized. Under the cathode, because current is flowing the opposite way, somas are being hyperpolarized. And in the most simplistic way possible, We can envision that under the anode, because current is flowing in and somas are being depolarized, the excitability of that brain region will increase. At the cathode, because current is flowing the opposite way and somas are being hyperpolarized, the excitability in that brain region will decrease. Now, this is sort of a gross oversimplification of of what's going on, but it, it has a strong neurophysiological basis. Now, if the excitability of a, of a brain region, let's say, has increased, you could think of all the derivative things, then that might happen. The function of that brain region might be enhanced in the most global sense. The ability of that brain region to undergo plasticity to learn might also be enhanced. So that in, a, in I guess, you know, I could probably go on for a few hours, but I think that in a nutshell is at least a way to start thinking about what TDCS is doing.
0: So, the current potentiates the firing of the neuron, is that correct to say?
1: Yeah, and that's a, very, that's a very precise way to say it. Unlike a technology like transcranial magnetic stimulation or deep brain stimulation, TDCS is very low intensity. And that means that if the neurons in your brain are not firing, let's say they're sitting there and, and they're at rest, if TDCS comes along, they're not going to be made to fire. That's in contrast, let's say, to TMS, which really sends a blast into the brain or electroconvulsive therapy. So TDCS is very low intensity. And when I mention that a nodal depolarizes the soma, this is only by a few millivolts. It's not making the cell fire. It's more changing the tone of the system. It's making it more prone to fire than it was before. Or in the case of cathodal stimulation, it's making it less prone to fire So it's truly neuromodulatory. It's modulating the tone of the system and changing how information is processed in that brain region.
0: Just theoretically speaking, would it be possible to have an amount of current that would actually fire the neurons?
1: Yes. So there is something called transcranial electrical stimulation, TES. This was um, particularly popular in the early 80s. There's a seminal paper by Merton and Merton. In those studies, they used intensities of about 1,000 volts. So that would be one amp Mm -hmm. uh, or um, 1,000 milliamps was the net current coming through. And these were very short pulses. So they would put small electrodes over the motor cortex and apply a one amp stimulus for a very short period of time, microseconds. And this would activate the motor cortex so intensely that you would get a muscle contraction, like you do with TMS. Now, this was also very uncomfortable. Mm. But uh, remember, with TDCS, we're talking about milliamps, so almost a thousand-fold less than the intensities they were using to actually fire the brain.
0: Is this well understood? Are there any missing pieces that we don't understand yet?
1: Tons. I think I, I could have, you know, when I, when I, when I gave you the explanation, I, I could have um, also just said, we really don't know. I th- <laughs> and this is an area that my lab and other labs are, are, are very actively engrossed in. I think, you know, one key point is that brain function is not a sliding scale of excitability. It is convenient to sometimes think of, you know, disorders like depression uh, or stroke as a, like a monolithic shifting knob of excitability but also brain function is, is much more complicated and treating brain dysfunction is going to be is going to require more sophistication than just you know anode more cathode less so right away at that most basic level I'm, I could I could sort of you know, challenge the simplistic idea I presented earlier and there are also many other basic questions like why and how does TDCS trigger plasticity? How does TDCS interact with ongoing activity? So if you apply TDCS while someone reads a book, uh, while you apply TDCS to someone else while they do a motor task, how might TDCS interact with that ongoing activity to trigger task-specific changes? So these are all very basic neurophysiology questions, and they're also very relevant to translational work, to how you design clinical trials. And so there are unknowns.
0: How do neurotransmitters enter into this equation?
1: So the obviously on the most basic level, uh, neurotransmitters are how cells in the, in, in the neurons in the brain are communicating with one another. With you know, one cell, let's say the presynaptic, releasing the neurotransmitter, and another neuron, uh, in this case would be the postsynaptic cell, picking it up and then it subsequently may be setting an action potential and becoming the presynaptic cell. So when we think about the brain, uh, we don't think about individual cells doing their own thing. We think about cells and networks communicating with one another, and neurotransmitters are, are at the heart of this, and they're also often at the heart of brain dysfunction. And so when we think about TDCS affecting brain function, the explanation I gave you earlier really focused on the single cell. But you might also ask, how does TDCS affect the ability of cells to communicate with one another? How might TDCS enhance the ability of cells to communicate with one another? How might it disrupt it? And there's certainly emerging evidence to show that TDCS can affect communication between cells. So this is synaptic communication mediated by these neurotransmitters. And when you talk about plasticity, so lasting changes induced by TDCS learning, those changes are thought to occur at synapses. So people sometimes will use the term synaptic plasticity interchangeably with plasticity. So again, when you're talking about how TDCS induces long-term changes, you're really talking about long-term changes at synapses and in the mechanisms by which these neurotransmitters are, are, are being pushed around.
0: Wow. Can you talk about any experiments that are going on in your lab?
1: Sure. In my lab, in addition to the, the work we're doing on uh, medical devices, which we talked about in the modeling, a third wing of it has to do with looking at the basic mechanisms by which DC current uh, affects brain function. And one of the things that we're, we're very interested in is how, how the state of the brain affects its sensitivity to electrical stimulation. And it's possible using animal models to precisely titrate the level of ongoing brain activity and then apply the DC current. So you can start with a situation, for example, of a completely quiet brain, no activity at all. And you can apply DC current to this inactive brain and you can ask, will this do anything? And then what you can do is you can start to increase the activity of that brain. You can induce, for example, gamma oscillations. Now the brain is humming along on its own. Now you apply the exact same DC current for the exact same intensity and the exact same duration and when you pull it away, you ask, now has a change occurred? And so the, the idea is that a, the hypothesis is that an active system will respond to TDCS. while well, a quiescent system will not. And this is certainly not an idea that's unique to our lab. There's other labs looking into it as well. And it ties in very nicely to this notion of not just doing TDCS to someone sitting in a chair and staring at a wall, but making sure you combine TDCS with some form of cognitive task. That cognitive task primes the exact network that you're interested in boosting. Now the TDCS comes in and acts synergistically. So TDCS plus ongoing brain activity. So this is a very translational question, and working in animal models allows us to really systematically look at it at a, at a network and cellular and even subcellular level.
0: That's very exciting. The DARPA research that we saw recently where learning time had been cut in half, is that kind of an application of this concept? Where they actually measured the parts of the brain that were active using fMRI while a person was um, learning the new task and then used TDCS to directly modulate those regions of the brain while ongoing training?
1: This is speculation, but I think it's analogous you know just the fact that they're using tdcs on healthy subjects right so this is to enhance cognitive performance in healthy subjects right away tells you a lot about the perceived safety of tdcs obviously when you're doing clinical trials on people who are ill you're you're balancing you know risk and benefit in a certain way but the the rationale for exploring tdcs to enhance cognitive performance and learning in healthy subjects starts to the perception that the the technique is safe enough um, and has minimal side effects to allow you to do that. As far as the efficacy, I do believe that there is there is a common mechanistic pathway between the way TDCS might accelerate learning in a healthy subject, as with the way it might accelerate learning in someone, let's say, who is undergoing rehab after a stroke. Mm-hmm. And and yes, in both cases, I believe that priming the network uh, in conjunction with applying TDCS makes a lot of sense as a way to make the TDCS do w- what you want. Because otherwise, if you think about it, you're just passing a DC current through the head. And it seems like a very uh, monolithic, basic thing to do. Why does passing DC current through the head do what you want, right, in that particular day and not what you don't want um, and not affect other processes? And so this notion of co-priming, either through this accelerated learning like the DARPA programs or through rehab where people are using a robot at the same time as applying TDCS to me makes a lot of sense as, as a way to extract a, a specificity from TDCS. Uh,
0: have you done any experiments yourself? Self-experiments?
1: Self-experiments. So in the, uh, in the environment of the, you know, in the, in the academic environment, the, the, the kind of experiments we could do, including self-experimentation, is, is very restricted. And so, on the one hand, sometimes uh, under IRB approval, uh, we will conduct experiments on ourselves initially as pilot subjects. Uh, and certainly the thinking is that we would never want to do something to someone else that we're not comfortable doing to us. But the majority of the work that's done in clinical trials, you know, here and elsewhere, would be on subjects that are, are recruited in, right, And consented.
0: But if someone was looking to enhance learning, what in your opinion does the research suggest would be the best montage and dosage? Could you comment on that?
1: Um, that, that is a difficult, you know, that's a difficult topic to, to comment on. Um, I'm just asking
0: for your assessment of the research. I'm not asking... Research. The, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, so the paper's are out there for, for everyone to read, and there's certainly a lot of encouraging findings in the peer-reviewed literature. You just alluded to some of it, uh, that is this DARPA-supported accelerated learning. There's been other work on memory consolidation. Uh, for example, Lisa Marshall... When stimulation was applied during the evening, uh, there's a lot of other work. Uh, I could name many names. For example, uh, Branch Coslett uh, is, a univer- is a researcher at the University of Pennsylvania uh, who's been showing um, uh, effects on different types of cognitive performance. All these trials, however, were you know conducted in, 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 a, in a sort of a very controlled environment uh, with very specific endpoints, and I think that that is something that's you know important to keep in mind.
0: Right. To that extent, do you worry about a DIY TDCS community getting active out there?
1: Well, I mean, I think I have to say, whether I worry about it or not, this is, I think, a community that will continue to grow and develop. I think one thing the, the community needs to address internally is the the special concerns that are associated with medical devices. I think that anybody who's ever you know, coded anything or, 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 try to build anything on, on a breadboard knows that inevitably, um, the initial designs are faulty and inevitably, even if you have a perfect design, when you make it, it doesn't work. You know, I, I teach instrumentation and I actually tell my students, if you think that the first time you built it, it's working probably means you're completely messed up. So th- that <sighs> is known that it, it is difficult even to follow very basic construction sometimes when you're making instruments. And I think that when you are designing a non-medical device, there's plenty of leeway for trial and error. There's plenty of leeway for mistakes if the worst thing that can happen is the light bulb flashes at a different rate. I think that when you're talking about uh, medical devices, the bar ra- is raised dramatically because the, the risk of something that could happen if you make a mistake is raised dramatically. That's why I mentioned a lot of the work that we do happens – is not really concerned with the 999 times. It's it's concerned about the one time. I think that these types of faults can happen even under the most sort of rigorous uh, and with the most experienced engineer. Uh, These are things like you order a component from a company and they ship you the wrong one. These could be things like you you, you assemble the device and it works correctly, but the device gets moved and something gets dislodged or a component burns out. And under those conditions, these devices might start to, they might, under best case scenarios, they simply stop working. Uh, but under other cases, they might start behaving in uncontrollable ways. And so a lot of this type of behavior is stuff that's built into the design of medical devices. It's sort of this redundancy. And I think that's something that any designer of, of a medical device needs to be cognizant of. These issues that, again, things that you might tolerate, uh, with other forms of, of hacking, let's say, that you wouldn't with medical devices.
0: Mm-hmm. So you think it's conceivable that something that was built that used a 9-volt battery and perhaps had a fuse that uh, would break a a circuit if there was more than 2 milliamps, even then, there's a potential for some kind of mishap?
1: As far as potential, yes. I mean, I think if you let's say if you set out to make a you were provided with a 9 volt battery and you set out to make a device that could hurt someone uh, and could burn someone you certainly could tdcs obviously has a very good safety record but tdcs is also a very specific set of protocols that are adhered to when people are running clinical trials as soon as you deviate from those protocols as soon as you start using intensities or durations or uh, repetitions that are not vetted in the clinical literature, you don't have the benefit Mm -hmm. of of leveraging that safety record. There may be uh, plenty of evidence showing that TDCS applied to healthy subjects up to five times in a period of a month is safe and well tolerated. That does not mean that uh, applying DC current to the head for two hours every day for a month uh, would be equally well tolerated, or increasing the current intensity. We mentioned the four milliamp idea. So I think that's something else that everyone interested in TDCS needs to be very cognizant of. That when you change the dose, um, you're moving into a new uncharted area, uh, and I, I would say to proceed with caution. You know, we only have one brain.
0: I appreciate that. I was just wondering if there was any particular scenario that you envisioned with, you know, the headlines explode around the world, TDCS, that uh, would, would impact uh, your, your research or the research of other researchers.
1: All right, well, John, thanks for, thanks for your, interest, your questions. We'll talk okay. again soon when we've got a better connection. Yeah, sounds good. We'll catch up soon. Great. Okay.
0: All right, thanks. thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about Marome and Soterix Medical, visit soterixmedical.com. S-O-T-E-R-I-X medical.com. Or check links and show notes at diytdcs.com. Thanks.